There's been a lot of uproar over the last few days about a film that Michael Moore executive produced and Jeff Gibbs directed and Ozzy Zayner produced called Planet of the Humans. It was released on Earth Day this year. And initially, I think some people were excited about it. You know, a climate movie by Michael Moore sounds like it might interrogate capitalism or power structures. Instead, it winds up targeting the environmental movement and renewable energy. Now, I'm not saying that either or both of those things is not worthy of critique. They both are. There are problems in both the big environmental movement and in the renewable energy supply chain. In fact, that's one of my biggest issues with this film, that it took what could have been an intelligent and nuanced critique of some of the ways that we're going about trying to solve climate change and turned it into a badly researched, poorly executed hit job on some undeserving environmental leaders. The film is tough to watch and not just because of Gibbs's monotone, which I feel like you need to hear to appreciate. So here's a little snippet. So I decided to begin following the green energy movement. What better place to check out how our renewable energy revolution is coming along than a solar festival in the green mountain state of Vermont, powered by 100% solar energy. Solar. I was having fun and got a chance to ask about getting solar panels installed. You can keep adding, so maybe every time you get a tax return, buy another solar panel. But then a little rain began to fall. I was having fun. Anyway. If it was just the monotone, I could deal with it. My big issue here is really the outdated information and the jumping to unfounded conclusions. I think the newest bit of footage in this film is from 2012. And when you're dealing with something like renewable energy, where the technology and the context changes rather quickly, you kind of have to keep your information up to date. That's not the only outdated and debunked thing in this film. At a certain point, director Jeff Gibbs makes it clear what he thinks the real solution is, the one that environmentalists are afraid of, population control. That old canard. First of all, it's something that comes up every 10 years. So the idea that it either hasn't been discussed or that it's been widely avoided by the environmental movement is just not true. <laughs> but secondly, the largest emitters in the world are in the Western world, where birth rate is declining. In fact, so much so that a lot of politicians are often wringing their hands about it. So usually when you have a bunch of white experts saying that population is the solution to any problem, it's kind of code for a eugenicist view of the world. Again, Gibbs brings up some true and valid critiques of the environmental space in this film, including the ways in which some aspects of the renewable energy supply chain are repeating mistakes from the fossil fuel supply chain, the massive boondoggle that is biomass, and yeah, probably some parts of the environmental movement have gotten a little too cozy with capitalism. But none of those end up being well argued or documented. Instead, the movie kind of jumps around from one conclusion to another, uses a bunch of experts who are never even named, 
And Cherry picks data points that are from a decade or more ago on everything from the efficiency of solar panels to how the electrical grid handles renewables. To correct some of those issues, I've brought in Leah Stokes. She is a political scientist and a professor at University of California at Santa Barbara. She has focused all of her research on the electrical grid and the energy system, energy policy, who shapes it and how and why. And she's just come out with a book relatively recently called Short Circuiting Policy about utilities role in delaying action on climate. As you'll hear in this interview, Leah has spent quite a bit of time reporting her book as well. And she, unlike Gibbs, had to update it fairly often. It's just come out last month. We have an excerpt up on the Drilled News website if you want to check out a little preview. And in this episode, I'm going to talk to Leah about what the Moore film gets wrong on renewable energy. She also has a story up on Vox right now, detailing some more of her arguments on this subject. So you can check that out. We'll drop a link in the show notes. That conversation is coming up right after this quick word from today's sponsor. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. If you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and The Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm going to be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's going to be big, really big. If you want to know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. If you had to pick one thing that bothers you the most about Planet of the Humans, what would it be? I think it's the attack on environmental groups because 
it's just not true. The things that they say about what environmental groups are doing and particularly in this moment when the climate movement has had such a breakthrough in the media and groups like Sunrise and Fridays for Future with Greta Thunberg have just catapulted climate change to the top of the agenda. And rather than joining with those groups, uh, it attacks them and pretends that somehow 350.org or the Sierra Club or NRDC are our enemy when really they are part of the fight to address the climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Especially the whole segment on biomass. I just, I'm like, you know, if you're going to make arguments about kind of evolving technologies, you cannot like report something four or five years ago and then not update it. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. <laughs> I read a little bit about it. Um, and also watched this Colbert interview with Michael Moore. And I think what happened was Jeff Gibbs, who's a longtime producer with Michael Moore, uh, had wanted to make a film. And for a long time, he was kind of just like driving around and, uh, you know, collecting information, talking to people. Because you'll see some of the early footages in Michigan in like, I don't know. Well, the vault was introduced, which was like 2007, 2008. Exactly. Really exactly. the Wayback Machine. Yeah. So what I heard from that interview with Michael Moore is that basically these guys were under coronavirus lockdown. And I, I bet that Jeff Gibbs is a procrastinator and Michael Moore was like, we're going to whip this thing into shape. And so he just took, you know, the pieces of this film that had been reported a decade ago and slapped it together into some half-baked narrative and released it into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, that's my hypothesis. I don't know if it's true, but, um, you know, it's, it's not at all up to date. Like this is all 10 years old, if not more. Yeah. What have you seen um, as sort of the reception of the film? I know I've, I've noticed some things on, on social media, but I'm curious what you've seen in terms of like how seriously people are taking it, you know, how people who maybe don't have the level of expertise that you have are receiving the information if it seems credible to folks. Yeah, so I think a lot of people in the environmental movement naively thought that this just wouldn't get seen by very many people or that it would just go away if we ignored it. And it's kind of like, how do you deal with climate deniers? They don't just go away if you ignore them. They keep sticking around and spreading misinformation. And so I think it has to be addressed head on because a lot of people who are going to watch this film, like one of my research assistants just watched it with her family over the weekend and she was infuriated by it. She's worked in the solar industry. She knows a lot about the topics, but her parents, they don't really know that much. And they were kind of like, huh? Oh, is that true? And then of course, Emily just reported in her newsletter about, you know, somebody quitting their membership in 350 because of it. So I think we are naive. If you go on the YouTube website and you look below, the comments are all very positive. You have to know that Michael Moore has 6 million Twitter followers. He's a household name. Everybody knows who this man is in the United States. And so what he does, it goes very far. And to pretend otherwise is just naive. I've noticed too that actually a lot of the uh, climate deniers have picked up on this Mm -hmm. and are using it a lot, you know, or even pulling clips from the movie to post to like make their own 
YouTube videos about, like especially the, uh, the stuff that is critical of Bill McKibben or 350. So I, I think too that people have underestimated how much it provides fodder for groups that maybe have different intentions entirely than the filmmakers had. You know, I don't know what their <laughs> goal was, but... No, it's going to be weaponized. It already is being. I mean, I saw a lot of people coming into my feed sort of saying, you know, they were like libertarian or right-wing this, uh, climate skeptics. And I just think that the film is going to be weaponized by those groups. Um, and it's going to be really problematic. It's a gift to big oil. That's probably not what their intention was, but they weren't thinking responsibly about this film. And I think it's just going to spread misinformation and climate denial uh, and, a, and a sense of doom, this nihilistic feeling that there's nothing we can do about climate change. So why even try? Right, right. I want to have you explain something that you pointed out in your piece about the difference between carbon that's dug up from the ground and burned in the form of fossil fuels and you know, wood that's burned as part of the biomass thing. Not in any way that you're arguing that biomass is terrific or that there aren't mm -hmm. issues with how it's been executed, but I feel like people don't necessarily know that little bit and it's interesting. Yeah, this is something that I teach my undergraduates and then I put the question on a problem set and they still get it wrong, but then after they've gotten it wrong, then they hopefully learn it. Mm -hmm. So it's basically the carbon cycle 101. We know that uh, there's a certain amount of carbon historically within all the time periods that humans have been alive that has been cycling. And it, it moves between the ocean, the air, and the land. So sometimes the carbon is locked in trees. Sometimes those trees burn through wildfires. Then it goes up into the atmosphere. And then it you know moves into the ocean. And that's how much carbon we have in the active cycle, we often say. But the, the way that climate change happens is when we dig up carbon from underground. That is what a fossil fuel is. Oil, fossil gas, coal. These are all carbon stores that are underground that are not actively cycling. They're not moving between the land and the air and the water. So I often ask my students, what's the difference between burning, burning wood historically? You know, if you burned wood, let's say in the 1850s versus burning fossil fuels today. And the difference is that burning fossil fuels brings carbon into the active cycle. We often talk about it being in the atmosphere in terms of parts per million, right? We say 415 parts per million is what we're at for carbon in the atmosphere, and we should be down near 350 or something like that. We could also talk about it moving into the ocean and causing ocean acidification and bleaching coral reefs, for example. But all of that extra carbon comes from fossil fuels. If we were to burn wood, it will also put carbon into the air, but that's not really new carbon for the cycle. That carbon was always in the cycle. We, it's really good to store carbon in forests and it's good to keep that carbon in the forests, but climate change is fundamentally about fossil fuels because it's about bringing new carbon up from underground into the active cycle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think to discount the amount of money and effort that the fossil fuel industry has expended mm -hmm. kind of controlling how the entire economy works and even like how people understand how the economy <laughs> works you know like the influence that they've had on on sort of culture and social understandings of things is like vastly underestimated by these guys. 100%. I often tell the story of the first time I heard about global warming or climate change. I was in high school and I had a geography teacher who I just 
loved and he was brilliant. But when he introduced climate change, he introduced it as a debate. And this was probably around 1999 or 2000. You know, they really both through legitimate ways where they try to convince people that climate policy is bad for them and illegitimate ways like these sort of fake campaigns, astroturfing that I also write about a lot in my book, Short Circuiting Policy. You know, they just completely change the narrative around fossil fuels on the one hand and renewables on the other. And this film, I mean, I don't think it was funded by fossil fuels, not that I know, but I'm not suggesting that. But it could have been because it is so much playing into their hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just for people who haven't seen it, some of the big arguments that this film makes about renewables are that they are inefficient, that that they are fossil fuel intensive to produce, that their lifespan is very short, and that the intermittency of renewables like solar and wind mean that you have to have kind of co-generation with fossil fuels. At, At various points, they make the argument that like, you know, there's essentially no difference between renewables and fossil fuels, which is just wrong. I think, you know, yes, there is certainly a discussion to be had about the supply chain of renewable technologies and, you know, Mm -hmm. where are we going to source silicon and where are we going to source lithium and all of those kinds of things and how do we avoid, you know, creating similar issues with a whole different set of energy technologies. Totally valid conversation, you know? (laughs) But a lot of these things that they point to, like the efficiency and the intermittency, we've made a lot of progress on in the 10 years since this film was clearly reported. (laughs) Yep. And it's, again, it's like you you can't report on new technology and not update your reporting. Yeah, I mean, I was writing a book about the same time that Jeff Gibbs was making this uh, terrible documentary about renewables. So I followed it accidentally in parallel alongside him with his work. (laughs) And so um, I had to update my draft so many times, you know, every time I would come back to the book, uh, the data would have changed. Um, the costs in particular for solar have just fallen precipitously. And that's not mentioned once in the documentary. So he goes to see um, a solar field sometime around when that, uh, was it the Volt that was released or the yeah. Volt? Like, it's the Volt, so, yeah. So around 2007, 2008 in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sometime around the, the Inconvenient Truth documentary, uh, literally that came out in 2007 or six, uh, he goes to see a solar field and he's like, wow, this can't even power any houses. But the reality is that solar efficiencies have gone up so much over the, t- over the last uh, you know 15 years. And so um, we now are able to uh, create a lot more energy with a lot less space and a lot less materials. Um, And the same thing for intermittency. I find it so funny. So intermittency is basically the idea that, you know, the sun is not shining all the time, the wind is not blowing all the time, and so renewables kind of flick on and off. But the grid has to be stable 365 days a year, 24-7. And so it creates some challenges for how you're going to make sure that you keep the grid stable. Um, But what we've learned in the intervening 15 years is that you can have much higher levels of renewable energy penetration before you really run into problems with grid stability. I mean, we're talking like north of 50% of your electricity can come from renewables. And they just kept going on about weird things like if 
natural gas plants ramp, somehow they are going to pollute more. I have no idea what they're talking about. I had not heard of that before. I mean, I'm sure there are some efficiency losses to have to match with wind and solar, but you have to think about the system overall. How much pollution are you burning? Are, are you creating in this system versus in the counterfactual system? And the film makes absolutely no attempt to do that. There's one thing that I did not write about in my piece because it's a little wonky, but they put this figure up at one point where they show how much um, coal and uh, natural gas there is to try to show that fossil fuels are, is not, are not going away. And it's true, they're not going away fast enough. But um, they do it in, I think, BTUs, which is units of energy, rather than in carbon pollution. Yeah. And so it completely obscures the fact that, for example, when natural gas is displacing coal, uh, we don't really know exactly, because of methane leakage, how much better natural gas is than coal. Mm -hmm. But probably carbon emissions are going down. And certainly particulate matter, mercury, nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide, these are all the things that go along with coal that do not go along generally with natural gas. All of those air pollutants are falling during that time period. So by putting BTUs on the figure, it makes it seem like, oh, we're just as dirty as we've ever been. And right. from a carbon perspective, it's very complicated, but from a you know, conventional air pollution perspective, it is fantastic that we are moving away from coal towards natural gas, for example. Right. I just, I was honestly surprised that there were so few accurate things. <laughs> I watched it with my husband and we were trying to fact check it in real time because he does climate stuff too. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I thought there would be more facts. Like I thought there would be more things that we had to rebut. Like even if you read uh, Kiten Joshi's rebuttal of it, this is this person from Australia who did a yeah. fact check of the film. Um, there aren't that many facts to fact check because it's not really very factual. Like I wrote that I don't even really think this should be a documentary. Like it, it doesn't it really trade in information. It's like some weird art piece. And you totally see that at the end when somehow there's an orangutan dying God knows where. <laughs> and the craziest thing is, that footage, if I understand correctly, wasn't even filmed by them. They just took this traumatizing image of this orangutan dying and stuck it at the end of their depressing film to make you even more depressed. Yeah. It had absolutely nothing to do with any other parts of the film. Yes. So yeah, it wasn't really about facts or a coherent narrative backed up by evidence. I think Emily put it well. You know, if, if, so, if this had been handed in, let's say it was an essay and it had been handed in as an assignment for a course that I was teaching, yeah. I don't think it would get better than a D. You know, this yeah. is a very poorly done piece of work. Okay, so the last thing I want to ask you about is the whole argument <laughs> about population, which to mm -hmm. me, the idea of population reduction as a solution to climate change is is like as wrongheaded as a like 100% technocratic approach. Mm -hmm. They both assume that there's no amount of social change that can or should happen. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, better technology on one end and fewer humans on the other. Of course it comes up. I remember being an undergraduate and there was a used book sale and I picked up a copy of The Population Bomb, not really knowing the history of that book or uh, its importance. Um, you know, this was sort of part of the idea that the earth had finite resources and that population was going to overrun it. And of course it was proven wrong in many ways because there's something called the Kaya identity or the IPAT, which is the idea that environmental impact is a function of population, yes, but also affluence and technology. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when you think about those three levers, population, affluence, and technology, 
uh, it makes a lot more sense to pull on affluence and technology, especially when you recognize that uh, wealthy white people are not having that many babies and wealthy white people are the ones with the largest environmental footprint. Exactly. Of course this, yeah, of course, of course this film throws out technology. That, that's not even a solution according to them. And right. it's so bizarre to me that Michael Moore, who's in the lefty uh, literati, did not somehow put affluence and capitalism on the table. You know, somebody know. like me. I'm like, Naomi almost Klein all of your movies are about how capitalism is bad. How did this one leave that out? I don't understand. <laughs> I know. The editor I was working on for the piece pointed that out. And so that'll be in my article too, that if you yeah. look about, if you think about Bowling for Columbine or Sicko or Roger and me, I mean, all he does is criticize corporations. And yet here we are with him criticizing environmental groups that are battling corporations, it, it, it's very nonsensical. So, you know, I remember clearly I was uh, looking at houses with a real estate agent and real estate agents often tend to be nothing against them. I'm sure there's some great real estate agents, but in my experience, I have seen racism practiced more when I've been looking for a home than ever else in my life. Because Real estate agents kind of sort you into neighborhoods that they think you're supposed to be in. And in the U.S., the, with the way that the school districts are aligned with um, property values, they kind of make racial neighborhoods. Mm. Anyway, so one time I was with this real estate agent and she said to me and my husband, uh, well, you don't want to live here because those people, they have too many babies. And she was talking about Hispanic communities. And wow. she said, you know, people like you, you guys need to be having more babies because you're not having enough babies. And that's, I feel like that really captured exactly what the population control thing ends up being about. Yeah. It, it ends up being about who should be having babies. Mm -hmm. White people somehow should be having babies and uh, black and brown and indigenous people somehow shouldn't, I guess, because we're racist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, so my husband, who's Madel Mildenberger, he he did some work on Garrett Hardin, who wrote that uh, article that's really famous, Tragedy of the Commons. And, yes. you know, Garrett Hardin was at UC Santa Barbara, where we work. And he, um, when I, when Trump was elected, I joined the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate groups in the United States. And what I learned was that there's a hate group in Santa Barbara. And I looked up what it is, and it's a population control anti-immigration group that Garrett Hardin was involved in founding. Wow. So, you know, these, the environmental movement has a racist past. Um, you know, the way John Muir, for example, talked about indigenous peoples. Yeah. Uh, Garrett Hardin pushed this idea of life, lifeboat ethics, which was about overthrowing sort of uh, black and brown people to keep white people to have the resources on the boat. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that if you're going to just randomly be like, yeah, population controls the answer and you don't do any reading about the history of that thinking and its ties to anti-immigration hate groups yeah. or like white supremacy, I mean, I don't know what you're thinking. For this time, thanks for joining us. We'll be back later this week 
with another episode, maybe two if I can get it together. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. We do a weekly recap of climate accountability news across the web and various other media channels. We also do have a paid subscription option there, and we also have a membership option through Patreon. In both those cases, you get access to ad-free podcast episodes, sneak previews of stories coming up, additional bonus content, and you get to support our work and help us make it free for everybody else. So we really appreciate that. We'll drop a link in the show notes to all the details on those things as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.